At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy. Chapter One Wayfair welcomes you to the neighborhood. Our hero Titus Burgess ambled down the stylish street of an enchanting utopia. A woman waved from a chic lounger. Welcome to the neighborhood, she said, where Wayfair helps everyone create a home they love. Titus stared in awe. Bohemian Boulevard, Trendsetter Terrace, Mid-Century Circle. Titus,、hmm? you're reading the Wayfair catalog. Oh, you'll love Chapter Two. Wayfair's fast and free shipping saves a potluck. Wayfair, every style, every home. It's Monday, February twentieth, twenty seventeen, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andre Viscontis, and I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com/inquiringminds, inquiringshow.tumblr.com, or on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. So something cool has happened to me in the last few weeks. What's that? Well, I found out that my new course from the Great Courses has already been released. Oh, what course is it this time? It's called Brain Myths Exploded: Lessons from Neuroscience, and it's a 24 lecture course. You can get it either audio or video, or both, of course. <laughs> You're like the sixth MythBuster that focuses on brain science. I like it. Sixth? Yeah, there was first, and、oh, then everyone else is just secondary. <laughs> What kind of stuff can people look forward to hearing about in the lecture series? Well, you can hear about all the sort of usual,、uh, predictable stuff. Like, do we only use ten percent of our brains? Are the brains of men and women different enough to be measurable? But there's also some kind of stuff that I think people wouldn't expect to learn about, which is things like dreams. You know, are dreams meaningful in some ways?、Um, and I also talk about、uh, brain training and brain food and. The thing that I really enjoyed about this course, though, is、uh, in understanding how each of these myths comes from a place where people want to understand the brain, and they latch onto some kind of a narrative that tells a good story. But the truth is, is that the more we learn of the brain, the more we realize that the truth is way more interesting, and in some ways, way more mind blowing. Where can people find the courses? So it's on Audible, Audible.com, if you just want the audio version, or you can go to thegreatcourses.com to get the video version. It's available streaming, or you can buy it in old-fashioned DVDs. I have a box of DVDs right now in my office,、uh, which is kind of. She's、cool. not lying. There is a <laughs> real big box of DVDs right there. It just arrived. Yeah. I'm getting a signed copy. Okay. <laughs> But for today's show, we talk about a topic that's much less joyful,、uh, a little bit morbid. One that I've been avoiding for a while because I've had a couple of rough years in terms of personal losses. And there's this book that came onto my desk called Modern Death, and I was like, oh, I can't read this book. And then I read some really good reviews of it, and it kept popping up, and I kept thinking, well, maybe I should give this book a chance. And I read it, and I have to say, it's hard to put down, and not because it's morbid, but because stories that Hader Warish tells in it are really interesting and gripping, and they really speak to a subject that most of us just don't want to talk about, 
And after all, it might actually help us if we do talk about it. Is how we die changing? Yeah, according to him, it's changed a lot in the last couple of decades in particular. I mean, I thought like, okay, so once modern medicine came around, you know, even like by the time we got the 50s, you know, how people die is pretty much standard. Most people get sick, they go to the hospital after a prolonged period of time, they die. But now as we, we're becoming so much better at extending those last life moments, as Atul Gawande has written, there's a real ethical dilemma that started to creep up because we can extend the physical life, you know, a heart beating or even blood pumping and in, into the brain, but not the personhood, like the actual quality of life can suffer a lot. And when you start having to make these financial calculations, like we spend more money in terms of our medical care at the end of life that we do, you know, for the majority of our entire lives. And you know, is it worth it? Is it worth it to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to extend a person's life for a few weeks if the person might not even be responsive? Sadly, most of what I know on this topic comes from watching medical dramas on TV. And I, I greatly look forward to this interview. So let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Hader Warich. This episode is sponsored by Sunbasket. And we all know we're busy. It's hard to eat healthy all the time. There's every excuse in the book. You don't have a personal nutritionist. You don't have access to the right ingredients. You don't have the time. You're too tired. Well, your body doesn't understand excuses, and that's why Sunbasket got rid of them. Sunbasket makes it easy to cook delicious, seasonal, nutritious meals in your own kitchen. Most of these meals take just 30 minutes or less, and it's healthy cooking made easy. I have to say that I've tried a number of these kinds of services, and so far, Sunbasket has been my favorite. The meals are good, and the thing that I like most about the Sunbasket meals is that everything is recyclable. So a lot of other companies have materials that seem to me relatively wasteful, but Sunbasket makes an extra effort to make sure that all of their materials are recycled. Each Sunbasket meal comes with pre-measured fresh ingredients and easy to follow directions and it's delicious. So what's more encouraging than that? You can eat better starting now with Sunbasket. Go to sunbasket.com minds today and get your first three meals free. That's sunbasket.com minds to get three healthy, easy to prepare meals free. sunbasket.com minds. Support for this podcast comes from Toyota and their new 2017 Highlander. If you're like me, when the weekend comes, you don't wanna just sit around the house. You want to get out with the family, explore new places and try new things. Maybe check out a science museum, hit a festival, or just go for a hike. Well, the new Toyota Highlander is the perfect vehicle for discovery. It starts on the outside with its sleek design and aggressive new front grille that say you've got an attitude for adventure. Its improved powertrain makes it more fun to drive and more fuel efficient than ever. It has Toyota Safety Sense technology standard, including a pre-collision system and lane departure alert. It even has five USB charging ports because you know the last thing you want is for someone's device to run out of power. And one of my favorite features is Driver Easy Speak, which lets you broadcast what you say to the rear seat so your passengers can hear you. Doesn't mean they'll listen like my three-year-old, 
but at least they can hear you. So navigate to your nearest Toyota dealer or toyota.com and see why there's always more to discover in the new 2017 Highlander. Drivers are responsible for their own safe driving. Always pay attention to your surroundings and drive safely. Depending on the conditions of roads, weather, and the vehicle, the systems may not work as intended. See owner's manual for additional limitations and details. The TSS pre-collision system is not a substitute for safe and attentive driving practices. Lane departure alert is not a substitute for safe and attentive driving practices. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Hader Warreich. Thank you, Andre, for having me on the show. So I have to say, when your book first landed on my desk, it was one of those things that I was like, oh, I don't know if I can talk about death. <laughs> it's been a few, uh, a couple of emotional years for me with some loss. And it was one of these things that I just needed to put aside. And of course, the beginning of your book addresses this very issue that even though it's something we're all going to go through, we're very reluctant to talk about it. You know, and there, there are many things in life that you know, I think many of us uh, do not want to bring up at any given point. And I feel like uh, death is perhaps number one on that list. As a, as a physician, you know, we end up having a very different perspective on death. It's really part of our work. It's one of the ways in which we can simply understand whether we uh, succeeded or failed, so to speak. And, you know, in life, there's so many things that seem to be very ambiguous. Death is one of those things that to this day, it remains pretty binary. So we physicians have a very different take on it. But, you know, when I decided to write a book about death and I talked to my wife, she was initially very, uh, she was appalled. She said that, you know, this is such a dark subject. Why would you want to write something about it? And, uh, but I think it's one of the, one of the most important parts uh, and one of the most important reasons is, in fact, to make talking about death something that people can do without perhaps a shiver going down their spine, because it is so important and is, is in fact becoming increasingly important to talk about it. So yeah, I mean, that's one of the, I guess there's sort of two reasons why death is taboo. One is the, you know, the actual process of going through it seems obviously very frightening. But the other side is the kind of existential side, which is, you know, we cease to exist, which to me is much more frightening than the actual process of dying. But, you know, that's that's a harder one to, t to talk about, I think. But le so let's start with sort of the the physician's view of, of death when you're faced with it all the time. And, and, the, and as you say, as you kind of use it as a gauge of whether or not you've been successful, how does that change your view on the process itself? So one of the key elements of medical training, especially in medical school, is that I think in one way or another, whether that's in a direct way or is it in a tacit way, it's made clear that death is the enemy. And the whole purpose of the medical profession and our medical training is in, in, is in fact to defeat or deter death. And I think that that type of process and that type of thought process and that type of thinking is actually detrimental uh, to our experience as a physician. You know, I came into medical training with that type of mindset, thinking that death is the enemy. But the thing about that type of mindset is that you always lose then, because no matter how fast we run, no matter what we do, death catches up to all of us. So part of what I learned uh, while I was writing this book was that I wanted to change the focus and I wanted to change the narrative around death. And the thing that I do actually believe is the enemy is not, in fact, death itself, but the fear of death. 
And what's happened over the course of the past century is that even though that existential fear of death is constant, what has happened now is that people are afraid as much of dying as they are of death. Because what it takes to die these days is so much different than what it used to be. Death used to be an almost binary event, an almost instantaneous thing. And yet now, with the advance of technology, dying has become a process that can occur over several years. We've heard in the news some of these examples of people who we're not sure whether they're dead, because now we have different definitions of death in the medical profession, brain death versus, you know, stopping of the heart and so forth. So what is the current state of the art definition that physicians use? And is there one that everybody agrees on? Or is there still some debate about how we should, you know, call it? So uh, as far as brain death is concerned, so brain death is relevant in patients who are supported with some type of uh, support, such as mechanical ventilation to keep them breathing. But these are patients who have suffered uh, brain damage or neurologic damage that is so severe that it is deemed irreversible. There is, in fact, a a very well-agreed-upon definition for brain death that to this date has not been challenged. But it is patients who do not really fit that specific and strict definition who present some of the challenges uh, that we face. These are patients who may have very severe brain damage who are in vegetative comas, who may never wake up from their comas, but they have some vestigial brain reflexes, such as, for example, they might still be able to gag, or they may have, they may, their eyes may might blink um, if you uh, touch them, or some other type of reflex. So even though from a sociologic perspective, you know, and from an anthropologic perspective, we may still debate whether they're alive or not, given that they may not, in fact, have any remnant of personhood left. From a medical definition, those patients still remain alive. And I think that causes a lot of disconcertation amongst people. People who are brain dead, I think, are on a very on an end of a spectrum. But it is the people who are in the middle of that spectrum who present some of the most challenging situations. I think one of the things that makes it difficult, of course, is that once in a while, you hear about a case study of a person who was in a coma for a long time, who was considered, you know, brain dead, and then they wake up. Are any of those stories real in the sense that that can happen, that a person can be declared brain dead, but eventually recover a reasonable amount of function? Or is it just that they were misdiagnosed to begin with? Um, what happens? And in, in, are there any ca- such cases? And, and if there are, what's going on? So to date, there has not been a single documented case of a patient who was formally declared brain dead. Some, someone who had been taken through the entire process the way it is supposed to be performed and then had any meaningful recovery of any sort. The problem is that even within the medical profession, the term brain death can sometimes be used a bit loosely. It can be used to sort of describe a patient as having severe brain damage, uh, yet that patient may not have undergone the type of rigorous testing. In those circumstances, in patients who who do not meet the criteria, there are, in fact, very, very rare instances in which patients can recover some degree of function. In fact, one of these cases was described in uh, the book. I described the case of a patient who underwent a cardiac arrest and who 
I was in a coma for weeks. And then one day I was just sitting on my computer and the intern who was working, who he came up to me and he said, and he told me that the patient had started speaking again. And even though he was saying basically one word and he was repeating it and it wasn't even clear that, you know, he kind of knew what he was talking about, it was still a big reversal. But I will emphasize that those patients are still the vast minority. Um, but yeah, those type of cases in which patients, again, do not meet the criteria for brain death, they do have a lot of severe brain damage. They are the ones that present a challenge to our society. And so how do we, uh, I mean, obviously, this is a very important thing to define, because we're also in an era in which we can use organs from another person's body to save the life of someone else. So understanding whether a person is going to recover is of critical importance if you're you know, going to be harvesting organs. So how good are we at making those decisions? I mean, is it always a person has to be considered brain dead before we can consider using their organs for someone else? Or, you know, what are, are do those criteria shift in different states? Or is there some kind of universal rulemaking or regulating? So there are, in fact, rules in place that can allow patients uh, who are not technically or truly brain dead to become organ donors. Uh, and that uh, this is, again, a situation I bring up in the book. I remembered this case uh, when I was in the intensive care unit. We had a very young young man who uh, had a heroin overdose. He presented to the hospital, was initially thought to be brain dead, but didn't really meet you know one of the criteria of the many and therefore was in that sort of gray zone. But if at that point, if the patient has declared at some point that he would want to donate organs or if the family wishes for him to be a donor for someone who would really need that organ, there are different criteria which rely on cardiac death, which basically means that these patients are removed from their support. And if their heart stops beating, uh, depending on... uh, uh, the sort of criteria used, uh, uh, those they, those patients can be declared uh, dead. And this is now starting to happen for heart transplant patients. This is uh, patients who are not brain dead have been uh, donors for other organs, but only now are they becoming possible donors for heart transplants as well. And is the thinking that, you know, they're not brain dead because the heart is being artificially you know, supported. And so if you take away that support, they would eventually be brain dead? Or is it just that their brains have suffered enough injury that they would never really recover that kind of personhood function? So those patients, the patients who are in the gray zone are patients who have dis- who have experienced a variable degree of brain damage. So as far as the brain is concerned, it, it's useful to think about it in two sort of broad categories. One is the brain stem, and this is the tail of the brain that kind of comes out from the back. And this is responsible for a lot of the reflexes that we have, you know, reflexes which occur such as, for example, if you tap someone's knee and their legs kind of juts forward or other reflexes and is responsible for keeping our um, lungs breathing. And uh, and then there's the upper part of the brain, which is called the cerebral hemispheres. And these are the sort of wormy-looking hemispheres that are at the top of our, of our brains, and these are the ones that are responsible for, quote-unquote, higher brain function, such as singing, talking, smelling, etc., 
And so if someone has complete brain damage, for example, both their brain stems and their uh, cerebral hemispheres are extensively damaged, they will experience brain death. But if patients have complete destruction of their higher brain function but have some residual function of their brain stem, uh, as in they will have some reflexes that are still present, they will not have met the criteria for brain death. So, and it is that variation in how much damage occurs in the brain that predetermines what the patient's chance of recovery is. And, you know, one of the ways in which sort of modern medicine has changed how we die is that there does seem to be a lot more decisions that a family or physicians can make at the end of life that inserts that it takes it away from, you know, this 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 thing that happens and becomes something that we do to others in a sense. So, I mean, I guess what I'm getting around to asking about is this idea that how different is it to remove support from a person that we have, that we have the ability to do, um, versus giving that person some kind of sedation or injection that you know, eases their suffering and, and leads them to die sooner. So it seems almost that there's this kind of gray line when it comes to physician-assisted suicide, where, you know, now it seems totally ethical. People are okay with, you know, removing a person from these ventilator systems and allowing them to die on their own. And that that seems qualitatively different from, you know, injecting someone with morphine or another substance uh, to hasten that death, even if the removal of the ventilator and all of that seems that it would cause more suffering? I think that's a that's a great question. I think, so, you know, what we do as physicians is really hard, and it's become harder with the advent of technology such as respirators and heart pumps such as LVADs, which can keep, you know, blood flowing from the heart, even if the heart itself is pretty weak. And the difference and the line between withdrawing some type of life support, such as a ventilator, or even stopping a heart pump, such as an LVAD, and the line between physician-assisted death, in which a physician pr- provides any type of medication that the, that the patient may themselves take to hasten their life, is becoming increasingly blurred because of how much support we can now provide. And people differ on, you know, what is the real difference? As you've mentioned, if someone is breathing on a breathing machine and you take the breathing machine off or you disconnect the patient from the breathing machine, it seems like a very active process. And many times, especially if their patients are very, very dependent on those machines, they can pass away almost instantaneously as soon as you take the support off. So even though, you know, in our uh, code of ethics as physicians, we have delineated these processes as being very, very distinct in practice and re- in reality, and especially for patients and their family members, those lines may be mostly academic at best. So how do you have conversations with families about this? I'm, I grew up in Canada, and there have been a number of cases in Canada where the physicians have made the decisions on behalf of the family. And, you know, that's justified in two ways. One, the physicians have more training, so they have a better understanding of actually what's happening and what decisions are, you know, in the best uh, interests of the patient. And two, there's also a state funding issue uh, in the sense that, you know, Canada has a healthcare system in which it's largely subsidized by the government. And so, 
you know, if you're going to pay so much money to keep someone alive at the end of life, and yet their quality of life is so poor, is it justifiable to spend so much of taxpayer money on that? Um, so, I mean, first, I'd like to get your reaction on that. And then we can talk about how the situation differs in a place like the United States, where, you know, healthcare is much more privatized. So if you look in history, we started off on one end of the spectrum. Physicians would really tell patients what type of treatment they would receive and really had no regard for a patient or their family members' opinions. In the 1960s, there was a study done that showed that 9 out of 10 physicians didn't even believe that patients had the right to even know if they had a diagnosis of cancer because they felt like they were not the, they were not equipped to be able to handle that information. And thankfully, that culture changed, and we, we've moved to a culture in which more and more we're looking to patients and their family members for decision-making. But that itself, by itself, is not a perfect solution. Many of these decisions are extremely difficult. They require really, really difficult decisions to be made. And for a lot of family members and patients, they have never been in those situations. They don't know what to anticipate. And a lot of studies have shown that that causes a lot of stress. And for family members, that can cause a lot of guilt. It's after the decision and a lot of regret about whatever decision they made. So I feel like the right place is somewhere in the middle in which patients and family members make a decision that is in consultation with their physician and the physician themselves give their gives their opinion about what they think is the right thing to do. Because I think both of us, you know, on on both sides of the divide, you know, physicians on one side and patients and family members on the other side, we both have things to offer each other. Uh, family members can tell us about what is really important to a patient, what are their values, who they are, what would they consider to be a good life and why, and and subsequently a good death. And physicians can help out with the medical information. They can, once they know what the patient's value system is, they can chart out the path as far as the medical details are concerned. Now, as far as your comment about, you know, our health system is concerned, you have to remember most patients who die in the United States are on Medicare, which is a federally funded program. So even though we have a lot of patients who are privatized, the vast majority of patients die after they're 65 years and over. So those discussions about cost are as relevant here as they are in other societies, although I think it is hard to have that discussion in isolation without taking into account a patient's values. I, I want to shift gears just for a little bit, because at the beginning of your book, you, you broached a subject that I think is really fascinating. And that is, it's, it's kind of akin to how we think about aging in that we spend a lot of money studying diseases of aging, but not a lot of money studying the basic biology of aging. And it seems the same could be said for death. We, we've spent a lot of money preventing death, but not a lot of money studying the basic biology of death. Is, is that accurate? Well, nowadays, we actually spend a lot of resources studying how cells die. And the reason we do that is because of our interest in cancer. See, cancer is a very, very fascinating disease because cells that are cancerous are those that have actually forgotten how to die appropriately. So if you look at research, half of all cancers occur because there's some, there's some type of problem in how the cell dies. So what the cells have taught us is that an appropriate death for a cell is extremely important for the survival of the organism. Because if a cell achieves immortality, it basically becomes a cancerous cell. 
And to me, that's a very, very fascinating observation because, you know, if you look at uh, us as human beings, for so much of our history, we've aspired for immortality. We've aspired to live a life in which, you know, death is a stranger. And yet when a cell achieves immortality, it ends up becoming a cancer cell that can destroy the entire organism. So it is because of our interest in cancer that we've now actually really started to study how cells die. And in fact, most of the newer therapies, these immunotherapies that we hear about, or these sort of directed therapies for cancer are all are actually those that are helping cells die appropriately as they would in normal circumstances. So do we know why cancer cells don't die? So cell death is actually a very, very complicated and deliberate process. There are a lot of different steps involved that allow a cell to die appropriately. Now, if you look at how cells die, the the most appropriate and elegant way in which cells die is a process called apoptosis, in which basically a cell involutes upon itself and disappears when it becomes old and has some type of disrepair. Now, that process of apoptosis has many, many different layers and mechanisms, and any error in any of those mechanisms can cause that cell to not be able to apoptose, causing it to sort of stay on in perpetuity. And some of these uh, defects are genetic. So in rare cases, there are patients who have genetic defects in how cells uh, are able to die, but many others we simply don't understand. Some of it can occur because of processes such as radiation, which can cause errors, but most of the times it happens quite randomly. So what about telomeres and the sort of what I think of as a kind of the the clock that ticks in a particular cell and as it divides, its lifespan gets shorter and shorter because of the differing length of telomeres on the on the ends of the DNA. What do we know about the relationship between telomeres and a cell's lifespan? So telomeres, uh, you know, are these uh, are occur at the end of the DNA strands and they get shorter and shorter with every cell division and hence at some point result in a cessation of that process. Uh, you know, so far people have been interested in the extension of life through the use of telomere-related enzymes that can cause that process to stop. People have also tried other mechanisms such as um, nut- nutritional restriction. So, you know, organisms that are fasting and have uh, a restriction of how much calories they take in can live longer than others. But there is a long way between these experiments being translated into human beings and even animals just because of because the small change in how cells die can unleash a cascade of effects that many of us cannot anticipate. And we've also been hearing that despite the fact that we are able now to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on our own medical care and the advances that medicine has made, the lifespan of the average person even in the U.S., is actually getting shorter. So there's a, there's this recent study that showed that, you know, after almost 150 years of lifespan extension, there was, in fact, a small but uh, demonstrable reduction in lifespan. And again, if you look at why that happened, it was mostly driven by things such as uh, opioid addiction and overdose, suicide, uh, things that are not necessarily related to our biology, but also show how it's hard to separate what we can do biologically uh, from what occurs in our lives as uh, social animals. And so when you look ahead 
Do you see there being a major leap that we will make in medicine that will all of a sudden expand, extend our lifespans by a couple of decades? You know, I've heard people say the first person to live to 150 has already been born. Is that just wishful thinking or do you actually think there are some leaps ahead of us? And what would those leaps look like? So at this point, uh, so if you look back from the mid 1800s, We've added about three months of uh, maximum lifespan every single year. And just to put that into context, it took us 200,000 years of human history to double our lifespan initially from 20 to 40. And then just over the last 150 years, we did it again. So a process that occurred over 200,000 years has now occurred over 150 years. So, and the degree of life exp- extension that we have seen as human beings over this past 150 years has never been replicated even in a laboratory, even amongst bacteria or, you know, small animals. So, you know, we're in the middle of something that is truly eye-opening and has never, does not have any single parallel in basically the living world as we know it. Now, having said that, there are studies that suggest that that radical extension of our lifespan is now, in fact, slowing down. And we may, in fact, be close to a plateau of how much longer we can live. In fact, if you were to eliminate all premature deaths that occur amongst people who are less than 50 years old today, our maximum lifespan would only go up by three and a half years, which isn't much. So what that tells you is that we may be, especially in societies such as Japan or other affluent societies, we may be getting pretty close to how much our lifespans can be extended under the current framework. Now, can there be any type of advance that that essentially alters our basic biology and, and that in some ways can overcome aging as it is programmed into our very cells? It's possible. But unless such a breakthrough happens, and it's hard to tell if it will, I think we might be close to... Um, achieving a reasonably stable lifespan. And if you had to speculate, someone said to you they were going to give you $50 million if you were able to speculate at least what discipline in medicine would be the one that would make that change. Like, would it be, is it, is it about, you know, our heart function? Is it about improving brain function? What, what do you think we should, or what do you think is, is our best bet in terms of what that leap, where that leap might happen? That leap will happen, if it does, will happen at the most basic level of our human bodies, which is at the cellular level. It is not any one organ that holds us back. You know, aging is a programmed into every single one of our cells. So to alter that, you would have to devise a mechanism that translates into changes across our bodies and across our cells. So my own sense is that if there is, in fact, such an uh, advance, it cannot be in isolation. It cannot be just the heart. It cannot be just the brain. It cannot be just the kidneys. It has to encompass every single thing. So so if it does occur, it would have to alter the very basic biology of our elemental cells. So I want to end with a question that harkens back to one of our previous interviewees, um, Paul Bloom, who's a psychologist at Yale, recently released a book called Against Empathy, which is a, a case for rational compassion. And, and one of his theses is that you don't want people, physicians in particular, to feel what it feels like to be a patient because then it becomes much more difficult to make rational decisions that are actually more ethical. So you can have compassion without having 
empathy without actually feeling what the patient is feeling. And I imagine that you as a cardiologist have probably had to struggle with this. So can you talk a little bit about how you are able to maintain a kind of objectivity and, uh, you know, a, a sort of rational approach when you're faced with dying patients every day? What do you do? So I think that there is a kernel of truth to that. You know, I think um, that, you know, if you do become attached to patients as you would with a family member, you don't want anything bad to happen to them. You want them to be around and you want to see them and be with them. But I think overall as a concept, I would have to disagree. I don't think that rationality and empathy are mutually exclusive. I think you can be very empathetic and rational at the same time. And in fact, I would say that if you are empathetic, you are bound to sort of see things in a very, very different way. For example, you know, if you have a patient who has a very poor prognosis, they have a terminal disease, you know, such as, you know, advanced heart failure or metastatic cancer, and you know that there may be very little you could do for them, the most empathetic thing you can do is to tell them exactly that and then let them decide about what they would want. In fact, I would say that it's hard to be empathetic if you aren't giving them rational information or if you aren't giving them objective information. You know, a lot of times when we try to extend life without really thinking about it in the context of the patient, even if we think that that's an empathetic impulse, we may be setting patients up for a lot of suffering. So I think as far as care for patients at the end of life is concerned, I think it's hard to be either empathetic or rational by by itself. I think you need to have both to be able to give patients the type of care that they would want. So I want to remind our listeners that Hader's book, Modern Death, How Medicine Changed the End of Life, is now available at booksellers everywhere. Hader Wareich, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Thank you, Indra, for this wonderful discussion. So one question you brought up is still lingering with me. And it's that question of, is there a difference between unplugging the ventilator or injecting somebody with morphine to help them die? You know, this this issue became extremely clear to me at a time when uh, I had a cat who had a kidney failure and we had to make the decision to put him down. And we actually talked to the doctors and the, or the vet and the vet said, well, you know, you could keep him alive for a couple of days. I happened to be out of town. My husband was taking care of him. And he said, you know, you can keep him alive for a couple of days until your wife comes home. And then, you know, we can, we can put the cat down. And I was thinking, you know, it, so this is the cat suffering. Yeah. The cat's suffering. It's not fun to be in the last throes of life. And so, it would be entirely for me that I would be prolonging this suffering. And I decided that that was not ethical for me to do, that it was much better to end the suffering of this cat. And yet, if that same question was posed to me and it was my mom, you know, I would make a totally different decision. And yet, that's not morally right. You know, why would I extend the suffering of someone whom I love even more than that cat? I mean, I love that cat, but my God, it's my mom. So I don't know. I feel like there's there's a, these conversations that have to be had because if we agree as a society that it's better to put down an animal when they are suffering, why can't we do the same thing for, you know, each other? And and I, I know this is a moral conundrum that opens up a whole can of worms and yeah, who and makes the decisions. and The morality of society is not uniform across this globe either there's big questions there beyond the i mean clearly this is a moral question i I think we can agree on that 
How much do you think science can actually inform that moral question going forward? Well, I guess that's where I still feel like there is some work to be done. Uh, because in medicine, the definition of death has evolved over years as we've been able to, you know, distinguish brain death from cardiac death and and so forth. And as Hayter talks about, there is a very standard agreed upon definition now. But I don't know that 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 definition is sort of satisfying to the general public, or maybe what we need to do is educate the public on how we make and maybe then it won't seem like such a conundrum. But, um, you know, I just I just know that in my own view, you know, having removing care from someone, even though yes, technically, ethically, it's, you know, it's not contrary to the Hippocratic Oath, the way actually injecting someone with medicine would be that would cause them to die. But it's such a more painful way, I would think, to get to the same end. And so anyway, I mean, I I know this is a conversation that goes beyond inquiring minds. But you know, it is, we do want to talk about where science and society collide. And I do feel like this is one of those areas that really we should be talking about more, even though it's hard, even though I didn't want to open that book, even though it's hard to read. I still think that there are people like this cardiologist who are doing us a huge service by starting that conversation. For me, it was really hard not putting myself in the in that place while listening to this interview. And I guess what I'd want is I'd want to have a close enough relationship with that doctor that's providing me end-of-life care that they would have input into the decision, too. I mean, I do think that the relationship with the doctor makes a huge difference. But I also think that it's important for us to have that conversation with our family members because ultimately you don't know who the doctor is going to be at the end, right? You know, you could be somewhere else. It could be someone who's... Um, on call or, or what have you, but it's a conversation that we need to have. No doubt. And a word that uh, kept coming up was just uh, dignity, a, a word that I think uh, could be used more often in the current climate. Absolutely. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Kyle Raihala, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, John Kirk, Jordan Miller, Herring Chen, Sean Johnson, and Nick Cadillac. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with the Climate Desk. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy.